Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Genesis. We will begin in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, and we will read through Genesis chapter 8, the first half of verse 1. Noah has been, we'll see that Noah is called by God to build the ark to provide a means of escape of the flood, but we are reminded that God has looked upon the earth and seen that the Every intention of man's thoughts is only evil all the time. And so it is with that that we pick up in chapter 6, verse 9. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make a lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish, but... I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you, and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for forty days and forty nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds, and of all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth for forty days and forty nights." On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every kind of wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, 
and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals, came, the animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the flood floated, or the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than twenty feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. Men and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for a hundred and fifty days. But God remembered Noah. Let us pray. Our gracious and holy God, the God who reigns above the storm. As we turn toward your word, we ask that you open our eyes and our ears. Turn the inclinations of our thoughts, the inclinations of our hearts toward you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we jump in, we're going to take care of a couple technical details. And um, in taking care of those technical details, I'm going to send you elsewhere for more information. Oftentimes the question is asked, was this truly a global flood or was this just a local flood? Pretty much all the major civilizations of the ancient Near East have some type of flood narrative within their history, within their mythology. And yet most of them, except for the scriptures, uh, talk about a local flood instead of a global flood. So many people feel that this was merely just a local flood that happened. Uh, but scripture says very, very much differently. It would be very difficult for all the highest mountains of the earth to be covered to a depth of 20 feet or more if it were only a local flood. Now, we do have to take into consideration that the geology of the earth was changed immensely through the flood, through the storehouses of the deep being broken, through the, the, the rain falling from the sky, and so the mountains then may not have been as high as they are now. However, it's still very difficult to have the highest mountains of the earth covered to a depth of 20 feet, covered above by 20 feet if it's not a global flood. For all of that information and deeper, I would refer you to um, specifically three different resources. The first is the Institute for Creation Research. You've heard me mention them before. Their website is icr.org. Uh, Morris and Whitcomb wrote a book called The Genesis Flood. Out of that book, which was written in the 50s, came the Institute for Creation Research. So they started focusing on the flood, so they have a lot of flood resources. Creation Ministries International, um, creation.org is another organization. And the Is Genesis History movie documentary, which came from, I believe, the uh, Answers in Genesis organization, which is Ken Ham. Um, so Answers in Genesis. 
org, I believe. It's either .org or .com. You can always Google Answers in Genesis. It'll take you right to it. Anyway, so for the technical information on the, the reality of the global flood, I will send you to those different resources. But as we consider the flood narrative here, there's so much more than just the nature of the flood. It's not, it's not unimportant that the flood is global, but there are many different things that we are to see within the flood. And today I just want to focus on a couple of those. Life brings questions, does it not? Oftentimes life brings really big questions. Uh, a song that came out in the 80s says that um, the line asks, you know, I want the same as everyone. I want to know why I'm here and for how long. Philosophers for all of the ages have sought to answer those big types of questions. But if we're honest with ourselves, those big types of questions come even into our lives. For those of us who are not philosophers, for those of us who are not theologians, for those of us who are not songwriters, the big questions of life oftentimes come. And so today I want to focus on one of those questions. And we're actually going to kind of look at it from two different angles. But it's the question of trust. Can I trust or can we be trusted? And so today what I want us to see is that, yes, because God can be trusted, we can pursue faithful obedience. Before we look at in the flood narrative whether or not God can be trusted, there's another question that's asked of us as well. And it's the question that God asks in this passage, can Noah be trusted? Remember back to Genesis where God put Adam, the, the first few chapters of Genesis where God put Adam and Eve in the garden and they sinned, they ate of the fruit of the forbidden tree and God came to them and in the midst of his cursing, he offered grace. He said, out of the seed of a woman will come one who will crush the head of the serpent, even though his heel will be crushed in the process. And we've seen through the line of Cain, the utter failure of humanity. And unfortunately, we've even seen through the line of Seth, the seed of the woman, the one who is presented most recently after Adam and Eve to be the seed of the woman. We have seen his line utterly fail as well, because it's not just the line of Cain whose thoughts are only evil all the time. It is all of humanity. And so we are left with this question. God has called Noah. God has a plan of salvation and redemption for humanity. Can Noah be trusted with this plan? And we actually open up with a clue to the answer. The very first thing we read about Noah in today's passage is that he was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. What does it mean for Noah to be blameless? What does it mean for Noah to be righteous? To say that Noah was a righteous man is to say that he was committed to living by a standard of righteousness or holiness that had been revealed to him. In other words, Noah was committed to pursuing God's law and rule. Now, we know from the scriptures that God had not given his law, correct? Moses has not come along. He's several hundred years, probably a lot more than several hundred years down the line. But we also know from Paul's writings that every human being has God's law written upon their heart. 
We know in some way, shape, or form how God expects us to live. We also know from Paul that God's law is revealed in creation so that we know that when we stand before a holy and infinite God, we are without excuse. But we also know that Moses or Noah walked with God. And so there was this probably relationship between Noah and God where they talked and God told Noah what he wanted and how he wanted him to, to live. But how do we what, what does it mean that Noah is blameless? It's the external pursuit of God's law to say that Noah was blameless is to say that Noah is upright and sincere. Noah was someone who was whole or complete. He was someone who seeked a wholehearted commitment in his relationship to both God and humanity. And so Noah is presented as someone who, yes, God can trust to to come through with what God needed to do to preserve the seed of the woman. We see that in this declaration that he is righteous and blameless. We see it in the repetition at least three times in this passage where we're told Noah did everything just as God commanded him. But it's important for us to remember something. We haven't looked at the entire story. We'll see after the flood that even though Noah is presented as the righteous and blameless man who did all that God commanded him. There is still sin in Noah's life. But the principle is there that salvation comes through one righteous man. When Noah gets on the boat with his family, he is told your your righteousness that 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 you there is singular. Your righteousness has saved your family. Your family is allowed to be on the ark because of your righteousness. And so we see the principle that salvation comes through one righteous man. And yet we know from later on that Noah will fail ultimately in his righteousness. He is not perfect. He may be declared righteous by God. Bruce Waltke says that the righteousness is not a work to gain merit with God, but the outcome of his faith in God. But his failure later on reminds us that we need one who is greater. We need a greater savior who is perfectly righteous who was perfectly able to offer us salvation. So if we've answered the question that Noah can be trusted to carry out God's decrees in the building of the ark and the loading of the animals and the loading of the food, but it also leaves us with the question, can Noah trust God? Think about this. When we're first introduced to Noah, he's 500 years old. The flood comes along a hundred years later when he's 600 years old. A hundred years he worked on building the ark. A hundred years he waited on God to show him what a flood was, what rain was, what it meant to destroy the earth. Think about the immensity of this work. Consider the dimensions of the ark. It's 450 feet long. It's 75 feet wide. It's 40 or yeah, wide. It's 45 feet high. There were no trains. There were no trucks. There were no steel girders produced out of Pittsburgh or Ohio or Japan. He and his sons had to cut down every tree. He and his sons had to transport every tree. They had to shape every tree with hand tools in order to build this ark. All the different kinds of animals 
had to be gathered. Thankfully, God gathered them for him, but they had to be loaded on the ark. Enough food for every kind of animal. Now, let me step back here for just a second. Kind probably means if you're if you're familiar with the classification system, kind backs up to the family. So there probably would have been one pair of dog kind loaded on the ark, not every breed of dog, probably just one dog kind and one cat kind and just all these different things. So don't think that he had to go out and get a Labrador and a, and a, and a, and a Pomeranian and every little breed of dog. He probably had one pair of dog kind. But he had to gather the food for all these things. He had to think about, oh my goodness, I am bringing predator type animals and prey type animals and I'm going to try to keep lions and sheep in the same confined space. I'm going to keep lions and humans in the same confined space. This could be problematic. Think of the corruption and the sinfulness of the age. You know, when our thoughts are only evil all the time and God removes his restraint from them, our actions become only evil all the time. And what do people whose thoughts are only evil all the time, how do they react to being told that they are corrupt and that salvation comes through a different means? They typically don't like that, do they? They respond with either verbal or sometimes even physical violence. Think of the impractical nature of this work. There was a building, it's called the Eyesore on I-4 in Altamont Springs outside of Orlando, Florida. A man who, who claimed to be a Christian said that God had given him the blueprints for this building and God was going to give him the money and the means by which to build the building. And he got the exterior of it about 50% complete, and it's called the eyesore on I-4 for a reason. It's an ugly building. It's ugly architecture. I don't think God gave him the plans because it's ugly architecture. God doesn't give ugly architecture. God's a God of beauty. But it has sat there unfinished for years. It's an impractical building. To many people around Noah, the ark would have been the same thing. Why do... What is a boat? Why do we need it? We're not traveling across any waters or anything. We're safe right here on the land. Why do we need a boat? Think of the faith required to leave the world and step into the unknown ark. We read in Luke chapter 17 that life was going on as normal when the flood hit. In other words, all of Noah's family that didn't get on the ark with him, all of Noah's friends that we know were not on the ark, were living life as normal. It almost be like us saying, I'm going to move south and I'm going to ask all of you to move south with me because we're going to get 75 feet of snow this winter. You would all look at me and go, you're nuts. And you'd live life like normal. You'd buy your groceries. You'd plant your gardens. You'd give your daughters and sons away in marriage. You'd have your dinners and your feasts and your parties. Think about Noah having to get on the ark in that situation. Do you think Noah asked at some point in that hundred years, God, can you be trusted? Am I making a fool out of myself? Am I wasting my time and my energy? Am I destroying these trees around me for nothing? Can you be trusted? And the passage answers this, I believe, in four different ways. 
First is that God keeps his word. Now, we open this passage today by God coming to Noah, talking to him and telling him, hey, I'm going to judge the world. The world is corrupt beyond all measure. Corrupt and destroy there are actually the same word in Hebrew. So the destruction that comes through sinfulness actually has destroyed the world. God just finishes the job with the flood. The world is destroyed because of the corruption of man. But God says, I'm going to destroy the world. And so the first sign that Noah has that God can be trusted is that day he walks on the ark. And the waters break from the deep and begin to fall from the sky. The second thing that we know that God can be trusted is that God brings the animals to Noah. God says the animals are going to come to you. You're going to load them on the ark in the way that I say. And then we're told the, the animals came to Noah in that seven day period. All the animals that God wanted loaded upon the ark, clean and unclean, showed up for Noah in a seven day period and walked onto the ark. Third, we can see that God can be trusted because he actually shuts the door for Noah and his family. 45 feet tall, 75 feet long, you've got to load every kind, every family of animal upon the ark. There's one thing on a boat like that that you can't seal before the waters hit. And that's the door. You can seal everything else, but that door can't be sealed until the water hits. And the language that we have here is there was no time for Noah and his family to close the door, much less seal it. And so we're told that God shuts the door and seals them in. And fourthly, we see, and we'll look at a little bit more deeply next week, is that as we have this destructive nature that just builds, this destructive language that begins in verse 17 of chapter 7 and just builds in its intensity, builds in its ferocity, builds in the amount of destruction to this just great crescendo of horrible sounds of water crashing on the side of the ark, falling on the top of the ark, all this horrific, destructive language, we have these few words. But God remembered Noah. And we're going to see that God restrains the water once again. God allows the water to dry up. And God brings the ark to rest gently upon the ground and provides a place for Noah and his family to begin the process of recreation. We've seen in the flood the process of uncreation as the waters that were restrained by God's hands in Genesis 1 flood the earth once again. But God remembered Noah. We read the promises of God in the Bible. We read promises that he will keep us safe, that he will keep us protected. We, we, we read promises that he will reward our faith and righteousness with salvation and we live our lives. We walk outside. It's safe in here. It's, it's almost as if we're in a type of ark in the midst of a sinful, corrupt world and flood here in God's sanctuary. And you hear proclaimed from the pulpit the promises of God. And then we walk out those doors. And life hits us. Sometimes we carry the floods in here with us. And we ask the question, God, I, I read your word. I pray to you, but I also live life. And the world's against me. Sometimes my family's against me. 
Sometimes those you have called to minister your word. Sometimes they hurt and abuse me as well. Can I trust you? But then God remembered Noah. And Noah knew in that as this whole thing unfolded. As God fulfilled his promise to judge. As God brought the animals to him. Noah could know. That in the midst of the storm, God remembered and he took care. You know, we are all called to strive to be described in the same way that Noah is to be described as someone who is righteous and blameless. And we live in a world that has absolutely zero respect for that. But God has promised rewards for those who persevere in righteousness, who persevere in blamelessness. Yes, we are brought into righteousness by the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. But we're commanded to work out our salvation, which means that in a world that is corrupt and falling apart around us, morally and ethically, we are called to live by a higher standard, a standard that God has given. And it's difficult. And it's hard for us to see sometimes that, yes, God can be trusted within the struggle. But we're not the only ones out there asking if God can be trusted in the struggle. There are those out there who are going about life as normal. There are those who are out there giving their sons and daughters away in marriage. They're having parties. They're having feasts. And the world's beat the snot out of them. The the world has attacked them. The world has abused them. Sometimes family members, sometimes friends, sometimes verbally, sometimes physically. And they hate and they wrestle with God. And yet the Holy Spirit is pulling. The Holy Spirit is tugging. The Holy Spirit is drawing and changing their hearts, drawing them closer to Jesus, drawing them into the church. But the last question they have Can I trust you? Can I trust God with this pain? Can I trust God with this hurt? Can I trust God? Can I trust God? And the answer is a resounding yes. But understand when those people walk through the door, they don't know. They don't know God. They don't understand. And so it is incumbent. It is It is required of us to answer that question as well. And not, can we trust God for me 40 years ago when I accepted him as my Lord and Savior? But can I trust him with my hurt? Can I trust him with my pain? Can I trust him with my vulnerability right now? It's a hard question. But it's one that we need to ask and answer of ourselves so that we can explain to that person who is not saved, who has not yet trusted God at all. So that we can explain to them that, yes, right now in the midst of your storm, in the midst of your flood, you can trust him with everything that you are. With every fiber of your being. It is hard to live in this world, not just for us who are Christians, but for every human being. Because this world is corrupt This world is in a process of destroying itself because of its sin and its corruption. And we need to know the answer to the question, can God be trusted? And the scriptures answer with a resounding yes. 
the scriptures answer with a glorious message of God can be trusted with everything that you are, every hurt you have, every joy you experience, everything that you are, God can be trusted with. Because in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the flood, God remembered Noah. Let us pray. Our gracious and holy God, our Lord and Father, drive it deep into our hearts that you can be trusted so that we might proclaim that glorious message to those outside and so that they might find the healing of being remembered by you. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.